Good morning. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Nick Alford, and uh, I've got my family here with me this morning, my wife Shelby, our kids Madeline, Jackson, and Jacob. It is a joy to be up here in Leavenworth and be invited to minister the gospel here at Cornerstone, a church that we uh, dearly love and are so encouraged by and so thankful for Pastor Dave's ministry in, and we just rejoice every time we're here to see Uh, The Lord has a lampstand up here in Leavenworth that the gospel is being preached, the gospel is being uh, lived out in community with one another. People are finding forgiveness of sins and seeing their life change through the power of the blood of Christ. We just uh, rejoice in all of you and we're thankful to be able to come up. Um, What I'm going to be talking about this morning from Exodus 3, if you you have a Bible or the Bible on your phone, you might want to turn there to Exodus chapter 3 which uh, Jordan already read for us. I won't read all of that again. I'll just read a few of the first verses, but thank you, Jordan, for that, that reading of chapter 3. Um, we're going to be talking about worship. We're going to be talking about how to worship. And by that, I don't mean, you know, with what happened up here a minute ago, what we should sing or what instruments it should be or a lot of the things that uh, sometimes churches can even argue about a little bit. We're not going to be talking about any of that. Uh, in fact, we, uh, we just love being here and singing with the saints of Cornerstone. It's one of our favorite things about Leavenworth, the songs you sing, the way that you praise Jesus through that. Uh, We're going to be talking about worship in a much broader context than that. We're going to be talking about how really all of life is worship. Um, We all worship our way through life from sun up to sun down. Um, The question is not actually whether or not we do that. The question is what are we worshiping? And so we're going to see that as true, and then we're going to use this text to feed and kindle our hearts in the worship of the true and living God. So um, let me read Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 again. I'll pray for us, and then we will jump in. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is your word, this um, story, this true historical account that we read of your interactions with Moses in in a real place in our world where you spoke even from the bush, Lord, to him. Um, Lord, we receive this as not just interesting history. Uh, but as your own revelation of yourself to us, as something you have given us for for how we're to live and how we are to truly worship you with our lives. 
today. We pray that you would use this text uh, for your purposes to encourage our hearts and to even point us more and more to the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Um, These are spiritual things that are not accomplished by the efforts or the um, eloquence of a speaker. Uh, So Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here and that he would be the one who is pressing these truths into all of our hearts, mine as well. I need what this text says. We all need what this text says. And so we pray that your word, by the power of the Spirit, would change our hearts this morning. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So somebody once said that um, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's true because the most fundamental question of all of our lives is this. What do you worship? And here's the thing about that. Like I already said, everybody worships. Worship is not an optional activity. The human heart was made to acknowledge and adore and give praise to a higher glory. We were were made to orient ourselves to something outside, something above. We were made to praise. And the way that every single person lives confirms that. Because everybody has a God. No matter what you might say comes into your mind when you think about God, the truth is your deepest beliefs... Your, your reaction to the world around you, the, the patterns of your behavior, the trajectory of your life probably answer that question more honestly than maybe even you'd be willing to answer it even to yourself. What is my God? What am I worshiping with my life? And there could be a ton of answers to that. Uh, for some, it might be their, their status, the way they're seen or or the way they feel accepted by the world around them. That's what they live for above all else, really. For some, it might be materialism or or, or money. For some, it might be a form of spirituality or, or a set of ideals. In the end, the problem with all these things, many of which can be great in their place and in proportion, the problem is that when they make when we make them God, They always let us down. Because when we ask them to be gods, they're all false. They're all counterfeit. In fact, when that happens, we've fallen in to what the Bible calls idolatry. The first commandment God gave his people when he redeemed them out of Egypt was, you shall have no other gods before me. And we might think, hey, I'm, I'm good, search my house. You won't find any little statues or, or shrines. I'm not an idolater. But the truth is, we actually break that command. We commit idolatry far more often than we probably realize. Idolatry can be committed through what we might call that, that ceremonial sin of of false religion. There are plenty of people all around this world who literally get down on their knees and pray and bow to statues. I've seen it traveling for missions work. That happens. But idolatry can also be committed by seemingly otherwise totally irreligious people. We can commit it 
It can be committed by Christians who would never worship a statue because it can be very subtle. When my overruling passions and and dispositions, when my sense of identity, my sense of worth, when my heart kneels down in front of all these false masters, I've fallen into idolatry. It's such a persistent problem. There was an old writer who wrote that the heart is a perpetual factory of idols. That's quite the picture. Just cranking them out like an assembly line. And the crazy thing about it is we know our idols always let us down. We've, we've seen this episode before. We've done this before. We know that they always reward our worship with sorrow and leave us more hollow than we were before. But it's, it's the struggle of our lives. It's so hard to quit. Everybody worships. The question is whether you're worshiping the only one who is truly worthy. The only one who can actually sustain the weight of our worship. So how do we fix the problem? Because if we said, all right, shalom and blessings, we're all done, this would be a very depressing little sermon. Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish pastor and author from the 1800s, once preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he talked about how difficult this is, how hard it is to dislodge false loves and false worship from your heart. Something you know that you shouldn't be turning to for what you're turning to it for or in the way that you do. Again, maybe it's, it's money or some relationship even. We can do it with that. Or some status indicator, something that's become an, overrule, uh, an inappropriate overruling passion. A master demanding your devotion and leaving you devastated in return. Chalmers said, and I think this is profound, that the way you stop loving lesser things, we could say the way we stop worshiping all these idols of our heart, is not actually by doing direct combat against them. Rather, what you do is you feed your heart something better. Something greater to love. What Chalmers called a new affection. And that new affection has an expulsive effect on the old. It drives them out. When it's bigger to us than they are, it displaces them by being this new and better love. What that means is the way that we stop living for idols and start worshiping God is to turn to God himself and be overwhelmed by him. We need to see him as far greater than anything else that competes for our worship, which is just another way of saying we need to see God as he truly is. Then we'll worship him. Well, One of the most powerful moments in Scripture, and there's many, but one of the most powerful moments in Scripture to see God as he truly is And to see what that means for our worship, for our lives of worship, is when a lone shepherd named Moses encountered God in an ancient hillside in a story we know as the burning bush. It's a story of how the descendants of Abraham, the Hebrews, the Jewish nation who had received the covenant promises of God, that they would be a great nation, that they would be blessed by God, and that through them God would bless the world. This is the true story of how God gave that promise to Abraham, and his children had children, and they had children, and they grew into this great nation, and yet 
400 years later, they're in slavery in Egypt. It doesn't seem like the story's on the right track. And yet, God remembered his covenant. This is the beginning of the story of their deliverance, their exodus out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. The way he did it was by calling this man Moses, who if you read his life story, it's amazing how God prepared him for this work, having him be raised in the very throne rooms of Egypt, prepared to be the leader of God's people out of bondage in Egypt. Yet read about him and you will find a flawed and imperfect man, to say the least. But that's still who God accomplishes his flawless and perfect redemption through, to set his people free and continue to work through them redemptively for the sake of the world. The burning bush story is the call of Moses to that role. And in its heart is this profound encounter with the God so great, Moses takes off his shoes because his very presence makes the ground holy. This is a story that matters for how you live out your life in Leavenworth or East Wenatchee or Pashaston or wherever you may live or us down in Paulsbell. It didn't just matter for ancient Israel. It matters for us today. It matters for how Cornerstone Church lives out life together. It's a story with the power to remind and renew our sense of the glory of the God we serve. This is a story that can help us worship. So let's give our hearts four reasons to worship God from the burning bush. That's our outline for working through this text. We're going to kindle our worship for the true and living God using this text as our fuel. Four amazing truths about our God from this text. First, the burning bush shows us that we worship God because he is near. We worship him because he's near. It's so obvious in the text we could almost overlook it, but the first and most basic fact of this is that our God is a God who comes near to us. In verse 2, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Verse 4 says, the Lord saw Moses and that God called to him. God is having a conversation with a man in this text. In verse 7, God says, he has seen what's going on with his people under the bondage of Egypt. And then in verse 8, God says, I have come down. Again, the first and most basic fact of the passage is that God comes near to us. And that matters. Don't overlook that. It's one thing to believe someone is real. Oh yeah, I believe in God. Out there somewhere. It's another thing to say, I believe God is near. My ancestors are real. Some people get really into genealogy and they can trace their ancestors way back lots and lots of generations. All real. But, but those lists on those pages, those diagrams, they don't actually mean a lot to me. They're, they're too far removed for me to take that much notice. But my own flesh and blood father, he's near. I know him. He knows me. We have a relationship, and that makes all the difference than some name on a page 14 generations removed. How much more then does it matter for our worship 
that our Heavenly Father is not locked away from us by distance, either spatially or across the ages through time. Our God is near. Our God is here. Our God is with us. This is true right now. It's true that the nearness of the burning bush is unique. This is not like a normal way for God to reveal his proximity. You should not expect to walk out here and see, you know, the shrubbery on the side of the road burst into flame and hear the voice of God. That's not normal. There's something special happening here. But there's nothing different about God in this text or in your everyday life. God can always be anywhere because God is always everywhere. He is the only being undefined in any sense by spatial limits or finite categories. Job 11, verses 7 to 9. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. When verse 8 says God has come down to Moses, it's not like the starship Enterprise has just beamed Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock down to the planet Romulus, and when the mission is done, they'll just beam them back up again and they'll fly off away. It's nothing like that at all. When God comes down in Scripture, it's not like an elevator or a transporter beam. It's the God who is always here and always near, coming down to our level, condescending to our perceptions, revealing himself to us in a way we can grasp. But the truth is, nothing's changed about God. He was near already. And in the several thousands of years since the burning bush, nothing has changed about God. He's as near to you right now as he was to Moses in that moment. When we worship him, When we do gather and and sing and pray and hear God's word proclaimed, we're not firing praises up to heaven with the hope that they'll slip through the roof and he'll hear us. No, when we worship God, we worship the one in whom we live and move and have our being, according to Acts 17, 28. The call to the worshiper is Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I am God. You do not have to climb to the top of one of these mountains as though you'd be closer to him. You do not have to go into an ornate cathedral as though he likes pomp and pageantry. You don't need a burning bush. You worship God because he's near right now. Now, God's nearness has always been true. It was true for Hebrew Israel. It was true all through the ages. But recognize, please recognize that there is for us an amount of access to him that would have been shocking to an ancient Israelite. Shocking even to Moses in this encounter. Because for us, the veil has been torn through the death of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 19-22 reads, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you understand that today's ordinary Christian has an access to God that the chief priest of ancient Israel would be astonished by? The whole point of the book of Hebrews, especially that section I just read, is the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is better. We have an access to the Father through the Son's blood that never expires, never has to be renewed, and will never lose a drop of power. Fuel your heart with that and worship the God who's near. Secondly, the burning bush shows us we worship God because God is great. It's not just near. He's great in this passage. Two aspects of God's greatness can motivate our worship. First, the greatness of his being, and second, the greatness of his name. So first, there's the greatness of his being. God is great and should be worshipped for the first and simple reason that what God is is great. And the picture we get here is the picture of this burning bush. What are we to make of this bush that burns, but verse 3, behold, it is not consumed. As I said, the burning bush is itself a picture of the greatness of God's being. Because consider the meaning of a pure flame that self-sustains without consumption of any outside energy source. We've gone through two winters, we live in a very old home, and we've gone through uh, two winters heating our house primarily with wood, and so I can tell you from experience, this is not normal fire behavior. Normally, fire has to be constantly, constantly fed fresh energy sources to consume. Fire is not durable. Fire is fragile. It fades. It's dependent on fuel. Fire is needy. But not this fire. This fire needs nothing. It burns without consuming. It gives heat without drawing on anything. There's nothing above it to keep it going. There's nothing below it. It has to use up to sustain itself. This is a picture of God. Our God is not like the things of earth. He's not dependent on the things of earth. Our God is complete in himself. All of reality can be very simply organized into two categories. We can draw a line right through everything and say there's one key distinction, creator and creature. On the creator side, God. On the creature or created side, everything else. Everything on the creature side is completely dependent on God for origination and for existence. God is unoriginated. He is eternal. And like the fire that burns without needing an energy source to sustain itself, God is the only truly independent and self-sufficient power that has ever or will ever exist. God existed in Trinitarian perfection for all eternity in a way we can't even fathom in our created, limited, finite minds. Forever, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in complete unity, in complete love. Not needing anything else. 
Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, the psalmist asks. He's asking it as a cry of worship because the answer is no one. No one is like God. Look at the make-believe gods of the pantheon. Go back and read the classics. Those gods were a bunch of jerks. They took from men and women to satisfy their desires and urges. They abused those they had power of. They had corrupt hearts. They were weak gods. They were needy gods. Like that great philosopher Hulk said of Loki, they were puny gods. Only God himself is worthy of worship for the simple fact of what he is. In philosophical terms, God is the only uncaused cause and the only unmoved mover. In biblical terms, which I think are far better terms, only God is I am. And that's the second aspect of God's greatness shown to us in the burning bush, the greatness of his name. Look with me again at verses 13 to 15. Exodus 3. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, uh, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The capital L-O-R-D in your English Bible is a tell, it's a clue, it's the way the translators inform you that the Hebrew is the transliterated Y-H-W-H, it's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And in this text, the meaning of that name is connected to the phrase, I am, I am who I am, is the name of our God, Yahweh. All other entities must include a predicate after that. I am so-and-so. Only God simply is. Only God can say, I am, period. But there's more. I stopped reading. Look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord... Yahweh, the God of your fathers, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. Did you catch that? He doesn't need in himself to be the God of anything, and yet he says, I am the God of my people. One of the most remarkable things about our God is revealed to us in this very moment. Because take everything we've seen about his infinity and his supremacy and his self-sufficiency. Remember, only God needs no predicate. That's everything that comes after the verb. I am such and such. God doesn't need to go on. Only God simply is. Only God is I am. And yet in verse 15, here's the God who needs nothing, who is internally ultra self-satisfied in the glory of his own being, who always knew perfect uninterrupted intra-Trinitarian love and contentment, who never needed anybody to add anything to him because he's never lacked a thing. 
here he is stooping down from heaven to take real relational care over the lives of people, even to bind himself to them through covenant. The God who can simply go by, I am, chooses to say, I am the God of my people. I am the God of my father, of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham, a specific person, Isaac, Jacob. I am the God of you. God's greatness doesn't hold him off aloof from the messy lives of men. God takes people like us, people living short lives full of trouble, as Job also says, and he says, they're mine. I am their God. And for us today, everything we've seen of God's greatness is only amplified. God could praise the greatness of God's being. Excuse me. Moses could praise the greatness of God's being. But haven't we been shown so much more? Don't we live among the riches of biblical revelation? Hasn't a more full understanding of God's triune glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, hasn't it been unfolded to us in in so much even more of a clear and detailed way? If what Moses saw was worthy of worship, so much more for us. Moses saw the greatness of the name Yahweh and worshipped. Even better, we now know him through the name Emmanuel, God with us, even the name Emmanuel. Jesus. And like God, although he never needed to, like God was not ashamed to call himself, not just I am, but I am the God of my people, even better. Jesus does not just call us his. He says that in our salvation, we are actually in him. And He is in us. An unfathomable union with Christ, who we must never forget, is Himself the God of creation and glory, the infinite One with us in finite flesh, Emmanuel. So we worship. Third, the burning bush shows us that we worship God because God is holy. This is so important in the text. We can't miss it. Look with me at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. We throw out these words when we talk about God, his, his might, his righteousness, and we use this word holiness and each one has a specific and important meaning the holiness of god is is not just the grandeur of his being like we've already been seeing it is his complete and utter moral perfection it is his white hot righteousness a sanctity so pure that sin actually becomes combustible in his presence Verse 6 concluded, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses was right. And his reaction is a lot like others in Scripture who got this glimpse of the holiness 
of God. When God came into the Garden of Eden just after Adam and Eve's first sin, they ran away and hid. When Isaiah got a vision of God in the temple, when when angels flew around singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory, Isaiah said, he didn't say, oh, that's nice. He said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. The Lord of hosts. This passage says something very instructive about what God's holy presence does. And how holy he is. Think about the fact that this is all happening on the grazing ground for shepherds' flocks. Think, as hard as you'd like, about the characteristics of an animal field. Part of the reason you wear sandals is because you don't want to step in anything in that field. It's about as far from the so-called grandeur of our soaring cathedrals you can imagine. But God says in verse 5, take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. God's holiness sanctifies the dirty ground of Moses' flock as easily as the soaring towers of Notre Dame. And that means something for our worship. There's a line I love in the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan, the Christ representation in those books, where a character asks, is is he safe? And the response is, no, he's certainly not safe, but he's good. There's a similarity in that to the holiness of God. The truth is, it's not safe. Worship, in a sense, isn't safe. About this holy ground and the God who made it holy, our text in verse 5 said to Moses, do not come near. This is a warning. And Hebrews 12, 28-29 likewise warns us, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now you may say, wait a minute. Now, Now I'm actually listening And I thought the point of the burning bush was that God's fire isn't consuming. So why is the author to the Hebrews saying he is a consuming fire? And wasn't our first point we worship God because God's near? So why did God say to Moses, do not come near? What's going on? In order to enter into the worship of God as he is, we have to be ready to have his holiness expose us for what we are. And that's not safe. God's holiness exposes our unholiness. His goodness exposes our sins. His righteousness exposes the fact that even our best righteousness is in Isaiah 64, 6 called a filthy rags righteousness. It is not that everything we do is worthless. That is not the point. It's that anything we do is so insufficient in comparison to God in His holiness. God's holiness exposes us, and there's very little we fear more than exposure. We live most of our lives desperately trying to not be exposed to the people around us. But God's holiness is actually not bad news. 
In fact, everything we've just been seeing can become our joy. Because the holiness of God, when we don't dilute it or diminish it or pretend it doesn't expose us for what we really are, God's holiness becomes a profound example, perhaps the most profound example of what the gospel has done for us. We speak of the greater access we now know through the blood of Christ. Do you understand that our access to God is not because the holiness of God has been in any way reduced or laid aside from anything in this text or any other text that declares it to us? It's not that we have greater access because He's less holy. It's not because someone turned down the dimmer switch on that white-hot purity of God's moral perfection and exacting justice that we now have access to Him. The God we worship is the very same God that caused men to hide, Isaiah to cower, Adam and Eve to run and cover their faces in shame. No, it's not a different God. He's not less holy. It's not that the holiness of God is in any way diminished, not in the slightest. It's that the cross of Jesus Christ really is that effective. The gospel really is that good. Jesus, God in the flesh for us, came and lived a life of perfect moral perfection that can endure the holiness of God. We didn't do that. Jesus came and died the death that our sins, that are so combustible in the presence of His holiness deserve, Jesus came and died for those sins. Jesus rose again, and so in Him, by His life and death and resurrection, the holy justice of God is not diminished. It's satisfied. Understand that on the cross, all the wrath of a perfectly holy God rained down on Jesus for our sins. We just sang it. The Father poured His wrath on Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus was made to be sin for us. That's a description of judgment. Galatians 3.13 goes even further, saying that the Holy One, Jesus Christ, became a curse there for us. The prophet Isaiah said it perhaps as plainly as any in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. This is talking about the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. It says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him and that by his wounds we are healed. Why would he do that? For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. He did it because of love. Jesus went willingly because of love. And so the worst thing that ever happened, the sinless one made sin for us, crushed in our place, is the most loving act imaginable if someone took it for you so you wouldn't have to. That's the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel means that we can stand in light of God's perfect holiness, fully exposed, and say, here I am. I have no righteousness in myself, but in Christ I have nothing to hide. His blood has washed me. His life has saved me. I plead the cross alone. Because He lived and died and rose for me, I've been fully forgiven. I've been declared righteous fully on account of Jesus' life and death in my place. 
For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That's a gospel so good it takes the holiness of God from a terror to a cause for adoring worship. God sees you. He sees right through you. But he loves you. And he always and only from now on sees you in light of Christ. Some of you crush yourselves because you think you can never measure up. Here's the critical secret. You can't. Stop pretending you can. Cling to this instead. Christ measured up for you. You crush yourself with guilt. Christ was crushed for you so you don't have to crush yourself. Remember Christ and know that you are fully loved by God in Him. Can this not stir our hearts to worship? Whatever your particular idol is, and believe me, I have my own list. We could go list for list, and I would just bet I'd beat you with my idol list. Whatever our idols are, isn't Jesus, isn't the cross, isn't the gospel so much bigger? Isn't he so much better? The expulsive power of a new affection can be true for you if we can just get a glimpse of the glory of God in Christ and how big this gospel is. We need to constantly be called away from the idols and reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done. Well, the fourth and final reason in this text to give our hearts a cause to worship the true God in Christ by the power of the Spirit completes that earlier quote from C.S. Lewis about Aslan. He's not safe, but he's good. Because fourth and finally, the burning bush shows us that we worship God because God is good. We're going to see this very briefly in three ways. Three ways God shows his goodness in this text, and then we'll close this message by applying those three ways to our own lives, and then we'll be all done looking at this this morning. So three things that show God's goodness in this text. First, God is good in this passage in seeing and hearing his people's afflictions and cries. It was right there in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, this, this nation in bondage and slavery. I've seen their affliction and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their Suffering, oh, the goodness of God to see and hear his people's cries. Secondly, God is good in this passage in remembering his promises because verse 8 goes on and says, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God had made promises Again, of, of this great nation, he told Abraham he would have children to outnumber the stars. God's promises were incompatible with his people being in slavery, so he didn't leave them there. He had for them that land flowing with milk and honey. And third, in this text, God is good in the way that he assures Moses' hope. Moses was a man just full of self-doubt. If you read his life story, you find that out. He's always doubting himself. Verse 11, he says, 
I mean, and he's saying this to God, right? It's like, like God's talking to you, and you're so full of self-doubt, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? It's like he's more scared of Pharaoh than God in this moment. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God doesn't say, oh, come on. No, he actually gives him an assurance of his hope. It's so kind. Look at verse 12. God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. We found out in verse 1 that the mountain was Horeb. It's called there the mountain of God. It has another name in Scripture, and that's the name Sinai. So, after God acted through Moses and Aaron to liberate his people after the plagues and the Red Sea crossing, Moses would indeed serve God on this very mountain again. This is the very site where God would come down in a storm to deliver the Ten Commandments. You see, so it was true what God says to him. You're going to serve me on this mountain. Moses stood on the mountain again. Moses' hope was secure in the God who, verse 12, was with him the whole time. Let's close by just applying those three aspects of God's goodness to ourselves. Worshippers of the living God, God sees your afflictions. God hears your cries too. You are never forgotten. You are never abandoned. The gospel of Jesus Christ means you are so engrafted into Jesus by faith. You are so saved by Jesus that for God to forget you, he would have to forget Jesus. For God to cut you off, he'd have to cut off Jesus. For God to disown you, he'd have to disown Jesus. He will never do that. And likewise, he will never forget, cut off, or disown you who are in Christ. Even in your affliction, even when you cry out, the love of God is for you because the loving God is for you forever in Christ. Worshippers of the living God, God remembers His promises to you as well. He never forgets. In Isaiah 49, 15, the prophet writes, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Psalm 56 says that God keeps count of your tossings and keeps your tears in His bottle. Not a tear you ever shed escapes divine notice. Even better than notice, Revelation 7.17 says one day God himself will wipe them all away. That's a promise God will keep. That's a promise worthy of your worship. And finally, worshipers of the living God, God assures your hopes as well. You too have a mountain promise. Through times of trial and discouragement and doubt, Moses had this hope. You will worship me again on this mountain. Keep the faith, Moses, because you're going to stand here again. You're going to stand before me on Sinai. I'm going to bring you here. That was an assurance Moses could take out and remember like a soldier taking out pictures of home when he's on the battlefield and remembering, I've got somewhere to go. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, so much better than Sinai, you have the sure promise that you will stand on a better mountain. You will stand on Zion in glory. You will see the far side of what John Bunyan classically called the dark river. You will pass through death and enter the celestial city. You will be with the Lamb forever. That's the sort of hope that makes all the difference in afflictions of every kind. The truth of God's goodness that animates our worship here is knowing that not so long till we'll all worship Him together there. All together. Us. All God's churches united. No more division. No more heartbreak. No more splits. None of it all of us together forever around the throne. We will stand together with him in Zion, in heavenly Jerusalem. The Bible calls it paradise, it calls it heaven. Call it whatever biblical picture grabs your heart. Know this, worshiper of God, one day you will call it home. Everybody worships. And this world is full of tempting idols. But in light of what we've seen from the burning bush, can we not say together, the highest glory of this earth is dust and vapor compared to a glimpse of the glory of God. May he rescue our hearts from idols and may we worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. Your word is life. Your word reveals even yourself to us. Lord, we praise you for what you've shown us this morning of your glory and your holiness. Lord, we praise you for the way that we don't have to turn down the temperature on any of that because we, even as sinners, have access fully to you to be embraced as by a father through the person and work of Christ. We thank you for your love that sent him. We thank you for his love that led him through that life of faithfulness to the cross and the tomb and to the resurrection. Lord, we pray that the Spirit would help us to wait for him, looking forward to the day when we will stand on the mountain together. Lord, we believe these things, and yet in our weakness, help our unbelief. Help us to rest in these more and more. Draw us closer to Christ, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.